You are listening to the Some Good Content Podcast, a swipe file of proven content plays shared by some of the most successful content marketers out there doing the work. I'm John Benini, and I'm your host. Now we are recording. (laughs) I have Nicole Bump on the podcast today. Many of you might know her from the group. Um, You've been pretty active like in the Facebook group and just like on LinkedIn and things like that. Um, But we were having a really good conversation up to this point. We were cannibalizing a lot of probably this recording. So I finally decided to hit record in Riverside. So here we are. Um, But anyways, Nicole, we were talking about like your your business, Bump Inbound. Um, You list yourself on LinkedIn as a fractional content director. Like... I know that that's sort of like uh, evolving and like a um, evolving state. So like talk about like that business, how you settled, like how it's evolved maybe um, in, you know, as a full-time person, like uh, how you landed on fractional content director. Is that what you are? Like, how, yeah, just like how, how that all sort of came to be. Sure. Uh, so I've been seeing a lot of people, on LinkedIn starting to call themselves fractional CMOs. And that kind of, it makes sense to people. They understand yeah. what it is, right? It's a CMO that you can use on sort of a contract or part-time basis. And I found that a lot of the companies I work with, they don't have the resources to hire someone to run content full-time. Um, so I was kind of selling myself as somebody that can help with strategy and editorial and you know getting this all done. And it kind of clicked for me at one point that a good way to explain that through a title might be fractional content director um, rather than like content strategist or, you know, whatever. Cause some of those names are a little bit nebulous. Um, so it resonated a lot when I put there out put it out there in the market. Um, a lot of people were interested. I'm not sure if that's how I'm going to continue to position myself moving forward because I feel like to do a really good job running content for someone, I'm not sure that you can really do that less than at least half time, right? So, um, you know, it's hard to have lots of fractional content director clients. You'd have to really limit it to, you know, one, two, three, maybe. And then your income is dependent on just a small number of clients, which is a little more risky. So I'm still trying to figure out exactly how I want to position myself and what sort of work I want to be doing ideally. It communicates the right thing though, right? Like, Yes. That you're not yeah. you're not just creating content. You're more of like a strategist helping map out the whole landscape, you know, implement processes and things like that. So I feel like it communicates the right thing. Yeah, it's kind of like what you would hire someone to do in-house running right. your content, um, except on a contract basis. Yeah. Now, again, I'm not sure that that's exactly the work <laughs> I want to be doing. Right. Um, one of the things I really like about working for myself is that I can test these things out, see what resonates with people in my network, uh, see what I enjoy doing, how the projects work out. And if I'm not really enjoying the work, maybe it's not panning out the way I wanted, um, then I can just try something new or revert back to something else that I was doing. So um, still trying to figure out exactly where I want to be in this whole world of content. Um, you know, I know a lot of pieces of all different parts of the content operation, but, um, what do I really enjoy doing that still lines up with what my clients want for me? And that's, that's a work in progress. And you've been in content for like, what, 10 years you've been in, like before you went full time before that, like you were in content. I mean, it's longer than 10 years now, but before you went full time, you were working in communications roles, PR, content marketing. It looks like at least 10 years of, of experience there. So you've kind of seen this 
throughout multiple companies. Like you've sort of seen the processes in play, maybe even built some of them, right? You've seen, you know, the movie, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, you're making me feel a little bit old here, but um, <laughs> I, I kind of like to say that I've pretty much been doing content marketing since before content marketing was a thing. Um, maybe not that long, but um, I've always been in some sort of uh, sort of Marcom role that focuses a lot on the writing and the educating. Um, it might have been a little more promotional before, right. uh, whereas now it's more educational. But yeah, I've been I've been in this whole Marcom writing content thing for quite some time. For the record, you just made yourself sound older by saying you were around before content marketing was a thing. So I know, I know, <laughs> but you know what? I don't really feel like it's actually been that long. No, I mean, and I, feel, I mean, content marketing I, itself was a thing, but right, it was like really cold content marketing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I remember when I first started interviewing for two content marketer roles at the same time, actually. And it was back in like 2014. And it was the first time I had heard those terms. Yeah. And I might've been a little bit late to the game, but I don't think that late. So I think that was around when it started really picking up. Yeah. I think inbound and content kind of went hand in hand. I think like HubSpot certainly didn't invent it, but they like popularized content yeah. marketing. Um, there were several Moz, you know, but so I feel like, yeah, maybe a little bit before that, maybe 2010, 2011, 20, but people were certainly doing it long before that, right? Like Basecamp and, um, you know, people that were using Blogger and stuff like that. But yeah, I don't think it was called content marketing for. Yeah, there weren't a lot of content time. marketing roles per right. se. And there wasn't like this whole industry, right? Like content marketing institute and content businesses and entrepreneurs and um, software, right? Like, I feel like that's all been, you know, certainly recent, I guess, last 10 years. But um. So like, how did, how did this all start? Not the full-time business, but like, I assume you were doing some freelancing on the side while you were working full-time. Like, how did you, like when and how did you make the first dollar for yourself on the freelance side? Oh, or do you see, remember so, that? <laughs> yeah, no, I do remember. It wasn't that long ago. Um, so for a while, I was at uh, HeartHanks, which is a big marketing services company, I was running their content in-house. Um, they ended up getting a new CEO that came in and nixed the entire marketing team, like one fell swoop. So I ended up in a role that really wasn't a great fit for me just because I was already interviewing for it. <laughs> and it was, oh, I just lost my job. So, okay, yeah, I'll take the role. Um, and... I wasn't all that happy where I was. So of course I'm kind of like looking around, what are my options? But I started getting people from Hart Hanks that I had met over years of doing content there, um, reaching out to me and asking, hey, you know, what are you doing? We could use help with this writing project. I had a few contacts that I was still in close contact with um, that were also like, yeah, of course we could use some help. So I started doing a few things on the side for people in my network mostly writing at that point, because that's, that's what I was known for. And that's what I was really good at. Um, blogging and mostly long form content. Long yeah. Form, like yeah. Bl blogs, guides, eBooks. E okay. Um, yeah. I mean, I've been hired to do all kinds of stuff, but that's, right. I, I love the writing side of it. I'm really good at the writing side of it. Um, so the long form stuff is definitely one of the areas I shine. And so that's where, I started off um, doing some side projects and started realizing, well, there's a 
decent amount of demand here, I bet that I could make more of a full-time gig out of this. Um, so I had a little bit of push in that I didn't really love where I was in my full-time role, but also some pull that my network was showing some demand for what I had to offer. Right. And you were still at Heart Hanks at this time? No. So I, um, the whole marketing team was let go from Hart Hanks. Okay. Uh, so I took a new job. It was, um, in a semiconductor company, which yeah. was not really my thing actually. Uh, and it just, they weren't in a spot where I could be really doing the things that I love to do. Um, so that's where I started kind of wondering what was next. Right. And so, okay. So a couple of people you had met in your network at Hart Hanks had reached out and uh, after you had left right. and said like, Hey, we could use help here on some long form content. Um, do you remember like in those early days, like how did you settle on like how to price your work for the first time? Right. Cause this was really the first time that you had to put a value on your own work, not your employer doing it. Yeah. Um, I was really lucky in that I, one of the people I knew from Hart Hanks that had also lost his job was the pricing manager. Uh, so he was happy to share with me what they charged as um, an agency rate for time with a, say, senior copywriter or content writer. Um, and I think it was like $150 an hour or something. Now, right. I was like thinking at that point, like, oh, maybe 75 or $90 an hour. Right. And then I heard that and I'm like, all right, well, that gives me a little bit more confidence that I can be charging more, maybe not the full rate, because that also includes some other agency services wrapped into it. Right. But it gave me the confidence to think like, okay, I'm worth a little bit more than I expected. Um, and I was for a while charging hourly but I just really decided that I hate time tracking. So I, <laughs> I, I tried to move away from that. I charge more um, project-based now. And it's a little bit of, uh, it's a little bit of an art of figuring out, okay, well, how much time is that going to be right. approximately based on my experience creating these kinds of things, but also a little bit around what sort of value am I providing to the organization? You know, if I'm creating something that is going to drive a bunch of business for them, um, you know, no, I can, I don't need to only charge a few hundred dollars, <laughs> you know, right. it, that could be worth a lot more. <clears throat> but did that, I assume that came later, like when you were freelancing on the side before it became full-time, you were mostly hourly. <sighs> Trying to remember. I think I charged mostly hourly at the time. Yeah. yeah. Um, can you still hear me? Okay. Yep. Yeah. I can hear you. Okay. I think it's um, and uh, so like who were, what types of clients were they early on? I mean, I think most most people when they start out, right? It's like whoever's willing to take a chance, right? Or 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 pay, right? So like who, who were those like first few clients like industry-wise? Not, you know, not necessarily the names of the companies, but like, um, and did that help you sort of develop like a niche or specialty? Yeah, so... Um... It was all people from my network for the most part to start. And so I will say like, it's important to sort of reach out to the people you know and let them know what you're doing and what sort of things you're offering and uh, straight out ask, do you have any work I could help with? Do you have anyone that might need my help? Um, because that's, that's definitely where I got a lot of my early work is just tapping my own network. Um, and let's see, a lot of who I ended up with was 
was, it, I mean, it was pretty much all B2B. I did have a few random B2C clients, right. but they're just not as great of a fit for me because it's not where I've got my expertise in at the, at the time. Um, so it was mostly B2B. I've got some like, just sort of like a business innovation company. I've got a lot of marketing and MarTech and ad tech, uh, work because, you know, they all know they need content. And because I had worked in marketing services so long, I was familiar with these topics and it was sort of the beginning of me niching down into that area. Um, I do find that there are a lot of B2B technology and SaaS companies that need a lot of content, but also financial fintech. That's not so much my expertise, but they're another good, typically well-paying Um, industry that needs a lot of help with content. Right. Yeah, really any digital focused business, specifically on the B2B side. I'm like really fascinated to anybody that goes to work for themselves. Um, Like, how did you know when the time was right to sort of go full time on yourself? So it was a really, really scary decision. I'm not going to lie about that. I, I probably anguished over it for months. And I... I'm lucky in that, you know, my husband works full time. He's got health insurance. Um, so I didn't even have those factors to worry about. Um, but it was a really hard decision going from what was a very good full-time salary to, to nothing reliable. Right. Right. Um, I felt like I knew it was time when I had a few clients that I knew would be giving me some regular work. Uh, And I had also reached out to another woman that sort of has her own consulting business slash sort of little agency. And I was, I was asking her like, you know, how do I, how do I know? Like, what should I do? I'm, I'm so unsure. And she was like, Nicole, I, you just need to put yourself out there. You need to put your good work out there and trust that it's going to happen for you. That's what I did. And it worked out. And so it was a little bit of a leap of faith at that point. Um, but I did what she said, you know, I, I put myself out there. I started being really active online. I started reaching out to my network and telling them what I was doing and asking for referrals and the business came, you know, like if you're a writer right now, content marketing is in such high demand. So, um, we're lucky that we have this skill set we have in such an in-demand market right now. Right. For sure. And so you had, you had a few clients that were committed to regular work. It sounds like. Um, yeah, I didn't have any retainers per se. I didn't yeah. sort of figure that out yet. I'm still trying to figure out like contracts and all that jazz. Right. Um, but I knew that they would give me projects for the foreseeable future just because they were part of my network and I knew them decently well and they were honest with me about what they needed and, and whatnot. Right. And this was still primarily writing long form content. Yes. Yeah. Um, and then like, how do you remember how long it took you to essentially like replace your your salary that you had full time? Like how long did that take you to to get to that point or even surpass it? I was really surprised at how easy that was, honestly. And I was <laughs> making a really good salary. I I got more than my full time salary. Um, I don't know if it was my first year, but by the second year, definitely. Right. Um. I was thinking if I could just make the same, that right. that would be a success. Right. But I am making double my full-time salary now. Right. 
And okay, I mean, let's just be honest. I was making $130,000 a year salary. Yeah. And last year before taxes, I think I was at about 240 yeah. just in my taxes. Wow. Yeah. And that's just from so, going all it, like it's so hard to do that like freelancing, right? Like just from being able to commit the hours full time to growing your business, um like your services and and all of that like would you would i mean obviously like the added time spent on the business is 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 a big factor but like what do you think was the biggest factor in year one or year two in being able to like essentially double your salary um was it expanding your services was it raising prices was it both of those like was it other things it's probably a combination. Uh, and just to be clear, I did not double my salary in year one. <laughs> so that, you know, maybe you, maybe other people can do that. Um, right. I, I know there are some people that are successfully like coming out like from a full-time gig, but they've got a lot lined up already. Right. Um, so uh, one of the things that I have taken really to heart throughout my career is something my dad taught me when I was a kid. And it was, if you're not embarrassed to ask, you're not asking enough. (laughs) And like, I've used that to negotiate salaries and I use that now in my pricing. Um, So from that advice, one of the things I've learned to do is when everyone's saying yes, consider if it's time to raise my rates. So not everybody should be able to afford you, right? I mean, you also can't get, like you can't as a solopreneur, especially you can't handle the work if everyone is saying yes to your proposals all the time. Uh, There's just too much going on in content. There's too much demand. So if you're in that kind of place, you, you can probably raise your rates and still have the same amount of business right. and make more money doing it. Right. Um, but at the same time, I have evolved what I offer a bit. So like I said, I was mostly doing long form writing out of the gate. That's what I knew how to do. And I knew people needed it. But as I started working with more clients, I noticed that so many of them, they knew they needed content, but they had no idea what to produce. And so I started doing more work, helping them to figure out the strategic side of things. Uh, what should I actually be writing? How do I, you know, put together my content calendar? Um, so it was just sort of um, a function of if I wanted the writing work, then I should help them figure out the strategy side of things right. as well. Right. Now, some people just want the strategy and that's fine too. Although I, I like it more when I can work on the strategy and then also work on the execution. It's just a lot more satisfying to me that way than to just hand off a strategy and never see it again. Um, But the strategy projects can be really profitable. Um, So that's another sort of like high ticket item that you can offer if you've got the chops doing that. Um, And sort of of a shameless plug here, I just created a course on doing your first content strategy because I found that so many people really needed this. So uh, I worked with a few colleagues at Ercule, which is a small content agency, and we put together a course on B2B content strategy. Um, Just found that a lot of people... Yeah, where can they find that? uh, So you can find it on my website, bumpinbound.com, and there's a button at the top, take my course. Um, but it's also on Gumroad and it's called the content strategy quick start. So we really prided ourselves on this and making it really step-by-step and tactical with like a ton of templates and whatnot. 
So somebody that has maybe been struggling to create a content strategy, they know they need one, uh, but just don't know what to put in there. I feel like that's a huge barrier for a lot of people is what do I know I need one, but what mm. the heck do I put in my content strategy? So this isn't for advanced content people, which I know a lot of your audience is um, like, if you're an advanced content strategist, you probably don't need this. But if you're one of those people that's like, okay, you know, CMI has been telling me for years, so I really need to document my strategy, but you're getting hung up on how to actually do that. This is, this is a good place to start. Although even if you're advanced, like I always find it super helpful to see how other people are doing yeah, things. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. <clears throat> even working with Hercule on this, like I loved some of the ways they were doing things and I've incorporated them into the way I do right. it. So exactly. Cause you always constantly think like, am I, do am I doing it the right way? Like, are there better ways? Yes. How, how, how does someone say <laughs> We all have a, like yeah. a little bit of imposter syndrome right. sometimes, right? So yeah, um, even if so, even if you're advanced or consider yourself advanced, like I, f I always feel like those are good opportunities to like see how other people are approaching it. And and also in some ways, like, you know, like uh, I'm looking at this book on my desk by Austin Kleon, Steal Like an Artist. Like you see how other people are doing things. Maybe you can incorporate that into your own services and and whatnot. So yeah, um, I would think that that would be super valuable. Um, but so that was one of the things I sort of evolved yeah. into doing from that writing stage of things. Uh, and now obviously working on things like courses, which we've monetized right. in this case. Um, that took me a while. Like I wanted to make this course for a while, but it was one of those things like, <laughs> well, I've got my client work and, you know, I've got my kids at home and do I really want to be sitting around like making a course? Yeah. I don't really know how to make a course. So there's another barrier. Right. Um, so actually it worked out well to partner with, um, with the guys at Hercule because then I had somebody to keep me honest and I had somebody that I was accountable to for right. making sure I was getting my portions done and all that jazz. It's amazing what that'll do. Yeah. Like I, I have several folks that I, that I talk to on a regular basis and the, just the simple act of saying like, Hey, by the next time we talk next month, I'm going to have done this. And it's like, you, you feel like you have to do it now. Whereas it's so easy to put things off or procrastinate, especially like you said, you have kids, like I have three kids soon to be four. Uh, there's so many excuses you, we could have, uh, but it's like yeah, having somebody to hold you accountable. Um, even if they're not every... actually doing anything, like nobody, nobody would actually like make me feel yeah. bad about it. <laughs> oh, no, I know. <laughs> but uh, So we meet every week and um, that's awesome. Well, we, I just added a new distribution model to the, the course and I knew that I had my meeting on Tuesday and I hadn't finished it yet. So I was Tuesday morning, like <laughs> typing away and trying to, even though like, yeah, they're not going to be like, Nicole, damn you, we're firing yeah. you. you yeah. know, like. <laughs> it's like that group project but in college when the one person that's not doing anything. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I was always the person doing it all. So yeah. I don't know if that is like the. I yeah. was that type A that didn't want to give anyone else. The, right. <laughs> the and now you work for yourself. Reason. So it all, it all makes sense. Yeah. Um, wow. Question I have, when you start to shift more towards the strategic work, how were you executing on the strat? Like, were you still also doing, I mean, you said you, in ideal state, you liked doing both because it was very satisfying, but um, hard to do, more profitable to focus on the strategy. So like who would handle the writing? Would you, find freelancers and, and handle that part too and like outsource it? Were you still doing both for a while? Like, what did that look like? So I'm actually doing a mix right now. Um, so I still do a lot of writing. Uh, I don't necessarily have a lot of clients that are having me execute their full content strategy. It's kind of a mix of like 
strategy projects that they go execute on their own, or um, maybe strategy projects that they think are great, but then they get sidetracked by other demands and don't fully execute. Um, so I, and I also have clients that just still hire me for writing. So I, I'm doing a mix right now. And when I need help with certain projects, I've got some writers sort of in my back pocket that I lean on yeah. for specific areas of expertise. <clears throat> There's one lady that I use a lot. Um, she's got some great SEO chops. And so I use her for one client that um, is specifically looking to rank with everything that we're writing together. And I use um, Endash occasionally, which is that writer platform. Um, they will help me find the right writer for what I'm looking for. And then I can like pay through the platform and I don't have to worry about, you know, taxes and 1099s and all that kind of stuff. So it's a little bit of both, although I still do a lot of the writing on my own. Right. It's um, kind of what I can handle and what I want to outsource. Maybe I don't like it as much, or maybe I just don't have the expertise or the bandwidth. And sometimes I'll outsource in those cases. That's the, yeah, that's the, I feel like if you can get to that phase where you get to pick, right? Like what this stuff yeah. I don't enjoy, so I'm not, I'll outsource this. This stuff I do, so I, I won't. Uh, I feel like that's the ideal state, right? For anybody in, in that sort of position. Um, yeah, well, and in this case, one of the ones where I get a lot of outsourcing help is, um, it's a it's a global payroll company. And this woman has expertise in SEO and HR. So, you know, I don't know anything about HR. So she helps me with getting all of, she, she does like a first draft and the SEO you know, outline and whatnot. And then I take it and I edit it and I make sure the brand voice is there. And sometimes I reorganize things a little bit. Um, so I'm functioning as sort of that editor in that case. Right. right. Um, this will be a nice loaded question, um, but those often make for the best ones. What, so as I've sort of started dipping my toes into some good content over the last few years and like what just started as a community and then it turned into other things and uh, consulting and that sort of thing is like the push and pull of working in the business and like working on the business. And like early on, it's easy because like you have to work and you have to create a product, the work, whatever it is, right? Um, but it gets harder as it goes because you're like, there's so many things that like are staring me in the face. I haven't, I don't have a landing page for this other service yet. I don't have like, I have to update this, but I also have to like write these things. Like there's these actual deliverables for like things, you know, for a group or a client, like, I don't think it ever gets easy, but like, how, how do you manage that? Um, well, like really practically, I manage my client projects uh, using a combination of Trello and Google Calendar. So anything that I need to work on in a given week, I have it in Trello in sort of a scrum fashion, if you will, like with the different right. columns. And so what I have for that week, then I will legit like block hours on my Google Calendar, say, okay, I'm going to work on this now. And so that's how I make sure that my client work gets done. And sometimes I should be a little more diligent about doing what I'm supposed to be doing according to my calendar. Right. Um, so I was going to ask that. I was going to exactly. ask how, how, how regimented are you with following that? <laughs> so it depends. If I'm really busy, I'm really regimented. But if yeah. I am kind of like not as busy some weeks, then I find myself procrastinating and wasting yeah. time. So right. um, you do have to be able to organize yourself and motivate yourself a lot to do this on your own. Um, when I know I need to get something done for the business, 
I just will try to block regular time on my calendar like that. So like, for example, right now, I'm, you know, was finishing that distribution module for my course. So I put time on my calendar for that to make sure that it got done. Um, and if I'm going to work on it on the weekend, I'll even book that time on my calendar on the weekend. I don't necessarily do it at that exact time, but right. it reminds me that like, I've got something, get it done before you go out Saturday afternoon or right. you know, whatever it might be. Right. Um, but yeah, it's definitely a tough balance. Like I've, my website is just like, I made it myself on Wix and I've hardly updated it. And like, I've been meaning to get photos taken and have someone make me a website. And cause I don't, I'm not a website maker. Right. right. But then it's also like, you've got to invest some money in those things. If you want them to, like, that's why I did Wix, right. It was practically free. You just buy Wix. Right. <laughs> um, but now if I want a new website, I'm looking at a few thousand dollars, you know, at a minimum. So right. yeah. If, and in, I think I'm at that stage now though, where I'm starting to have more traction in the content marketing space. And if I want to start getting these like bigger, more profitable projects that I think I need to sort of up my presence a little bit on my website. So it's probably time for me to invest in some of right. those things. Right. Yeah. From like a content creation standpoint, you mean? Yeah. I mean, so yeah. it has what I have right now for a website, for example, it served me fine over the past few years. It was like a Wix site made it myself and people can go there and see a little bit about what I do. They can see some of my work samples. They can schedule a meeting with me like good enough. But um, if I'm going to start sort of trying to play at the next level, I think I need to just have a little bit more of a polished presence, right. if you will. I often have those same feelings about like the website um, and I like some good content. I, I launched a free site just on Squarespace. So s similar reason to why you chose Wix, right? I, for me, it's like, I want to be able to control it and make changes myself. I don't want to have to like, you know, work with a developer and have yeah. to wait a week or like, I just want to make changes quickly, at least at this stage. Um, but like, I'm always surprised at how many like really high performing, um, I'd say more like, I guess like consultants or services or, uh, and, and companies like how many really high performing consultants that I know or businesses that have like really basic websites. And so like, I often wonder, is it that important? Like, or am I just making it important? Like having a website is important for sure. Having content that you're publishing important. Um, but like the things that I sometimes fret over and I'm like, I, I just don't think maybe sometimes like they're not as important as I think. That's probably a really fair point. Yeah. Like, um, and I'll even go to say, like you said, having content that you're publishing yourself is important. I <laughs> All I do is publish on LinkedIn. Yeah. I don't publish anything else because it's kind of like the whole cobbler's children yeah. have no shoes analogy, that, right? Yeah. Like when I write all week for other people, like, do I really then want to go write my own stuff? And usually the answer is no, I don't want to spend any more time writing unless I'm really excited about something. Um, right. So I haven't been publishing on my own blog and I actually am just starting to do that again because I've realized it is kind of fun. And I'm again at that stage where I want to do some of the things that I tell my clients to do. Right. Um, just because now I know that I know it works. I know that's what you should be doing. And it, I'd love to like just follow my own advice, I suppose. And if LinkedIn changes their algorithm in two years and it becomes basically like Facebook where it's pay to play. Like maybe you'll have. Then at like least I have a the organic an owned channel. channel. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, I I hear you. It's a, it's like for me, it's it's about finding like a different angle, 
And like, that's what some good content sort of became for me is like talking about the work. Whereas like the work you're doing for clients is one thing, but then like talking about the work and how I'm doing it and like the frameworks that I use and like ha- having to sit down and like think about, all right, how, how do I approach doing that thing? And like, I'm, I'm making sense of it for the first time. Um, and then publishing like that, that felt different to me. It was still writing, but it felt different enough where I didn't feel like I was uh, like, I, I focus on content all day long and then I'm going and writing more content. It felt like different enough for me, like just that switch in the angle. Um, so yeah, that, yeah that's and I, something that's helped me, I think a little bit. I think that is a really great point for people that are trying to figure out how to start building their own presence. Cause at least when I was starting out and I hear this from a lot of people, um, you don't know what to say. You feel like everything's already being said. You are not yeah. necessarily the the best expert. So what right do you have to be talking about this topic? But if you go back to something that you've worked on and just take learnings or lessons out of that or build a how-to out of how you did it, that's your expertise. Like you did it. There's no disputing that. So right. it's, I think, an easier way to sort of break into talking online and publish publishing things that, um, you know, you, you're good at and feel strongly about. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's not easy to do maybe when you're, when you're first, it becomes, once it becomes more of a habit, um, I think it, like it becomes easier creating a more regimented, like process around doing it just like you would anything Mm -hmm. else. Um, but I saw something like a long time, like I think a lot of the fear too is not just not having something to say, but then people telling you that you're wrong or that you, what you said is stupid. Like that's also like a fear um, that I know years ago that I used to have. And I mm-hmm. read something like once, I think it was from David Cancel uh, from Jeff. And this was like several years ago that he posted something about like having haters online is actually like a gift and a privilege. Um that means enough people are seeing your stuff that some people don't like it. And um, not that like I have haters, but like I've learned to appreciate when people disagree with what I say. Um, I've, I've learned to like appreciate that and be like, you know what? Like this is, this is great. Like this means enough people are seeing this where sure some people agree, but now there's also people that disagree as well. And like, what a good problem to have rather than like nobody sees my stuff. Um, this is such a timely uh, conversation as well, because I was just watching a video this morning of this guy. He's a famous YouTube creator, and he was talking about um, negative feedback, negative comments online. And he said some of the things he asks himself are like, is this someone I respect? Yeah. Is this someone that has expertise in what I'm talking about? Is this somebody that's um, done something that I want to do? is this person my mom? (laughs) Like otherwise, otherwise, like I just don't really care, you know? So having sort of a filter of what you're actually going to care about or respond to can help with that as well. But I'll also say like, for the most part, especially when you're new and just sort of getting started, there aren't going to be a lot of people that straight out argue with you and tell you you're wrong. Most people want you to succeed, especially when you're new at this. And if you just kind of go into it with that mindset that most people are generous and happy to see you do well, um, especially the people you already have in your network, right? Like they're not going to, Yeah. I mean, I don't know, maybe you got like crotchety uncle Joe or something that's going (laughs) to get on there and like argue with you, but. But most people are supportive. Yeah. And I think, uh, 
if you're a freelancer or a solopreneur or, you know, people are hiring you to do work because you have a unique skill set. So to, so to say that like, I have nothing unique to add really, it's like, why are people hiring you now? How, like, how can you sort of, uh, basically systemize or, 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 or document how you do what you do for clients? Like, why do they pay Mm -hmm. you for that? There's a reason why they're doing that because you approach things differently. Like what is your approach and start talking about those things. And I think everybody has something unique to offer there. And I think, um, yeah, it's easier said than done. We were talking about TikTok before we get on here. And sometimes it really just involves like getting out of your own head and trying a bunch of stuff. A bunch of it's not going to work. Some of it will. Uh, but the more like reps you have at it, like you'll you'll start to know like, okay, here are the two or three things or areas that people like to hear from me about. Let me continue to like leverage that. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, w- I was talking to a coach of sorts at one point and sort of lamenting like, about my course and other things like, well, I don't really know if I know enough about this. Like, I feel like maybe I need to do a few more of these projects before I start sharing about how to do it. And she's like, Nicole, these people are going to hire you or buy your course to learn what you do know, not what you don't know. Like you've got a lot (laughs) of knowledge. That's a great point. So yeah. I mean, like if you're getting hired by people now, or you've done the work in the past, even in a full-time role, you've got knowledge there and it's just about starting to put that work out there and do more of it and build on it. Right. And yeah, you have a unique approach. It's not the same as everybody else's. And uh, yeah, I think it's just, and all of us have go through this at some point, just getting out of our own heads and, and imposter syndrome is a real thing. I think especially for the entrepreneurs. Right. It is. It's, it's like trendy, but it's, but it's real. Like it's a, it's a real thing. Um, Last question I have for you. Do you ever, another loaded question, these are the best ones. Do you ever think about going back in house? And like, what is that? Like, what is that, you know, push and pull? Like if there is one, um, because I feel like there's so many people in house that are like, oh man, I just want to work for myself. And like, I talk to some people that are working for themselves and like, man, like, I just, I don't know. Like, if I could find like the right gig, I think I might go back. It's like the grass is always greener. So like, what does that, what does that look like for you? Yeah, that's a great question because I do think about this. Well, I used to think about this more than I do now. Let me put it that way. Um, I was, I was missing a, like having coworkers that I could, you know, interact with throughout the day because interacting with clients is very different than interacting with coworkers where you can just chit chat and sort of, you know, shoot the breeze or whatever it might be. Um, So it can get kind of lonely, especially just working from home and, you know, my husband's around a lot, but he is a fire captain and has no idea what I do. So, I mean, <laughs> kind of, but he's not the kind of person that you can like talk shop with so right. much. Um, so I definitely have, have looked at it for that point. And then I've also thought about like in this kind of role, there aren't a lot of projects that I get to sort of conceptualize, do, and measure results from. So as someone on the outside, I don't usually get to do all those parts myself. And I'm the kind of person that really likes to do all that and see the fruits of my labor and sort of see the see the impact of my work. And that's not necessarily something that I always get to do as a freelancer or a contractor. So I have entertained jobs and I've done some, you know, interviews and whatnot. 
Um, one of them was actually a really fun sounding opportunity. Um, and I was really hesitant, like back and forth, writing pros and cons lists. And again, this coach I was talking to was like trying to get me to tease out what was most important to me. And one of the things that really came up was the flexibility in yeah. my life. And and that was what decided it for me because that yeah. is that's what I love most about working for myself is the flexibility that I can just walk away from my desk in the middle of the day and go run an errand. And like, I, I actually think to myself when I'm out in the car and it's sunny and like nice outside, I'm like, see, I get to be out right now, you know, and nobody, <laughs> not accountable to anybody. I've got all my stuff done. Right. So I don't have to be at my desk right now. Or, you know, I can take I can take a bunch of vacation if I plan appropriately. Like I'm thinking about taking the full month of July off this summer. Yeah. And like, that's not something you can do in right. a full-time role. Right. Right. I've got little kids. I like to go to their uh, sports practices and you know, all that jazz. So that flexibility is super important to me. Um, I heard somebody say once a few years ago, like I am a freelancer for the lifestyle it affords me, not for the pay. Um, so like, I'm not going to grind for 60 hours a week on your projects. Right. I don't think, I don't even think that you need to like choose between the two necessarily. Like right. I make great money. I also have a lot of freedom and flexibility. So, um, I, I, after positioning it like that, I don't think I'll be looking to go back in house anytime soon. Um, realizing that that's really what was most important to me. Um, another thing too, is just that it's hard to find anyone that wants to pay me as much as I can make as <laughs> Yeah, those, those two things. Yeah. The flexibility aspect is, is, is tough. I mean, in a remote world, there's, there's opportunities that are similar, but like you said, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's hard. Um, I can imagine to, to go back and I feel like there's probably a lot of, there was probably a lot more FOMO when people were in offices and maybe you felt like you were missing out on like that camaraderie. Um, but now it's like yeah, people, or- somebody like, I feel like the the freelance and solopreneur area, there's so much support there from other freelancers and solopreneurs. So it's like, you kind of have those people you can shoot the breeze with. And so they're just, they're not directly working with you, but it's like, you can, you can sort of like mimic that a little bit. In, yeah, in, you have to make a point to like talk to people outside of like LinkedIn, like yeah. get on the phone occasionally, or I have a few people that I talk to a lot on Slack, yeah. you know, kind of like it would be a coworker, we just chit chat or, you know, yeah. whatnot on Slack throughout the day. Um, and so I think that helps for sure. But um, yeah, it now that people are going back to the office again, I, I don't know, I feel yeah. kind of lucky that I'm no. home and I don't have yeah. to go back to an office. No, no. So Especially this time of year, gone. like you said, you're, where, where are you, New Hampshire? Is that what you want? Yes. And yeah. like, you know, I'm in Connecticut. So like the weather is just starting to get nicer here. Um, and yeah, like we've had, I think tomorrow it's going to be like 70 here, which. Oh, it's you not know, here. So it's a, you're a jerk. <laughs> what's the temp there now? <laughs> um, I think we're going to maybe see 60 something tomorrow. Okay. So that's. be 50s again for like yeah. two more. 50s weeks. is better than what it was though. So I'll that's take true. that. That's There's true. people listening to this that live in like California or Florida and they're like 70. Um, uh, imagine being excited about sixties or seven. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, it's like, I can't imagine having to go back to an office and realize some people that are listening might be in that position. Um, but yeah, it's not, it's not for me anymore at this point, like the in office environment. Yeah. 
yeah, there's pros and cons for sure. Um, but I've always said that it would be great to have an office to go to like two or three days a week if I wanted to. Right. And then be able to stay home the other day. But then I wouldn't go. Yeah. I mean, it's like, it's tough. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Like maybe if they were giving out free lunch that day or something. (laughs) Well, it's like now I have three kids and I'm able to pick up my son from school at, I I drop my oldest off in the morning and I pick him up and he gets out at like three o'clock. Um, you know, I can't, you know, it's just being able to do that and spend that time, even that short drive to and from school, talk about his day and mm-hmm. hear what he's excited about. Like, man, like those are the things I know that I'll look back at, you know, in a few years from now and be grateful that I had those times to chat with him and, you know, bond together on the way to school. So it's like those little things like that, that, that flexibility offers that I just, yeah, it's, it's hard to imagine ever being back in, in an office environment everybody's different. Some people can't imagine working from home full time, but yeah, it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's really hard to imagine for me. Yeah. Being in that. I was office again. very thankful that we were able to drive the kids to school the past couple of years because the school bus yeah. was like another, you know, potential <laughs> disease like van or whatever yeah. you want to call <laughs> right. it. Yeah. So we've been driving, they actually just recently started going back in the bus. Uh, so again, I was happy that we had the ability to do that. Um, I know it has been really tough for people that had more strict jobs over the past few years to make everything work with everything that was going on. Right. Yeah, for sure. Nicole. Now, the- I know. Oh, oh sorry. Go sorry. Ahead. Go ahead. No, I was going to say, I know you said that was your last question, but you had also told me that you were interested in talking about pricing. Do you want to try to fit that in? Sure, we can. Yeah. Like, I think, uh, I think people would be interested to hear, like, not just maybe how you, what you price your services now, but like, how do you, how you come to that decision? Yeah. Um, so I think I talked about this a little bit. Um, I had an idea when I started out about like what an agency would be charging for a good writer. Uh, so I started kind of pricing my work hourly and I think I was charging like a hundred, $125 an hour at the beginning. Now that was kind of dependent on me Mm -hmm. being in a B2B role that was working with a lot of like technology and SaaS companies. Um, they are, you know, higher paying industry in general than say maybe B2B or, or excuse me, B2C, CPG, whatever it might be. Um, so I was, I was doing hourly rates at the time. And then I started, like I said, getting tired of tracking all the hours. But at at that point I had an idea of, okay, it usually takes me, I don't know, X many hours to do a thousand word blog post, or, you know, it takes me however long to do whatever kinds of projects you're doing. So it's track it at first, kind of figure out on Mm. average how long these things are taking you. And then you can kind of extrapolate about how much a project would be and kind of standardize it. Now, sometimes you'll go over your typical time on a project. And so maybe your hourly rate doesn't work out quite as, as high, but sometimes you get things done faster. And that usually is generally how things go as you get better and more experienced is that you learn how to do things a little more quickly, you get more efficient. um, And then because you're charging by the project instead of the hour, your hourly rate is essentially going up as you, as you increase your expertise and your speed and all that jazz. Um, And then the strategy side plays a big role too, right? Like, you know, like aside from the the actual execution of the work itself, the strategy you're delivering could result in tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands for for like a business, right? So 
like for a business that wants to engage with you now, like on, you know, what you're calling your fractional content, um, uh, you know, role, like where, where does like the typical engagement start at? Or is there a typical uh, <laughs> Yeah. So I think I was sort of underpricing myself in that when I started out. The way I was thinking about that was that um, the initial couple of months would be more expensive, like $6,500, $7,000 a month, because yeah. those were the couple months where we're putting all the plans in place, like doing right. the heavy lifting on the strategic work, audience development, all that stuff. Um, and then after that, the monthly rate would be like, I don't know, three or $4,000 a month for me and my time and my like calendar management and reporting and, you know, helping with briefs and that sort of thing. And then it would be an additional cost for each like content piece under management, if you will. So, you know, if they wanted to do five content pieces a month that, um, you know, that might be me writing them. I'm going to charge more than just the set retainer rate if I'm going to write it, or I can farm it out, just farm it out, have someone else write it and edit it and serve as an editor. And, you know, then I'm going to have to pay that person. So anyway, there was, there was a little bit of moving parts around that. But what I'm really trying to do now is find people that know that they just need a steady pace of content. Um, and, and get them to commit to that on a monthly basis. And this is harder than just getting the project rates because people don't love right. signing a contract necessarily if they can get someone to do it without a contract. But if you know that you've got a client that needs your typical four blog posts a month and you can say, all right, well, you know, I can do that for six months for you, three months, six months, wh- you know, whatever you think that they might be willing to tolerate as far as a contract goes, and then just be able to bill at the start of the month for your four blog posts. Like that's where I find is kind of happy, sweet spot right now, because right. you know, the, you know, the income's there. I, I know that the work is there so I can schedule it in and I don't have like surprise projects popping up on my calendar. Um, that always makes things harder, right? If all of a sudden somebody comes to me out of the blue and says, can you do an ebook for me in the next two weeks? Well, I have all my regular clients that, yeah, I want to do your ebook because it's a great project, right. but now I have to squeeze it in. So I know that's a little off topic from pricing, um, but I've moved from sort of hourly to the project-based and now I'm trying to use that project-based to set up sort of ongoing retainers. Um, and I do factor in some of that value-based pricing. So to your point, if you know the business is going to generate a bunch of revenue from what you're creating, then you can probably charge a little more for it. Uh, And if you want to just throw some numbers out there, like I typically charge about a thousand dollars for 800 to a thousand words. So it comes to about, comes to about a dollar a word, maybe a little more depending on, um, you know, if I'm going to write a longer post, like 1500 bucks for 1500 words. But then when you get into deeper stuff, like maybe you're doing a really long blog post or guide or ebook, um, like 2,500, 3000 words, I actually charge more like $4,000 because you have to get deeper and have more expertise and like dig more to be able to write at that level versus the thousand word piece. Um, So those are a few prices to throw out there. Um, And my advice too, was going to be like, talk to other consultants, talk to other freelancers, like share that information because a lot of times you will find like, oh, wow, they're charging more. I could probably charge more too. Or (laughs) if they're charging less than you, now you've helped them out and you've helped. Like I like to, I like to, um, mentor people that I know and say, okay, well you can charge more next time. Like feel free to send me your proposal before you send it out to your client so that, you know, I can tell you if you can be asking for more. Um, 
yeah. I especially find that to be true for, for women that often undervalue themselves. So. Right. For sure. Yeah. I, yeah. Connecting with others who are doing the same work is a great way to uh, quickly like get over the, Oh, okay. So I, I, I am worth that much and I can charge that much. Um, and just, yeah, ask them like, what are you charging? Right. Like <laughs> people yeah, are open and- to sharing. And even if it just confirms what you're already charging, like sometimes I've had people, not too often, but I've had one or two people be like, wow, you're really expensive. And I didn't work with those people, but uh, (laughs) like, I've never had a good relationship start by you telling me I'm too expensive. Um, But like I talked to Aaron Balsa at one point, we were kind of comparing our pricing and we were both like, oh, okay, great. Like we're, we're right around the same spot. I'm not too expensive. Yeah. (laughs) It just felt good to know that like another person at a similar level in a similar niche is, you know, kind of right on, on par with what I'm doing. Right. Yeah. Unless, yeah. Unless there's like a, you're flagrantly above like the typical market rate. Um, Yeah. All those people that say things like you're too expensive, don't value the work enough, haven't done enough research into it and know even like what they're looking for, what, what the value of that is. And like that, that's going to be a horrible, that's going to be a horrible client. Well, what was ironic about that person was that he was like, oh, but I've just had so much trouble finding a writer that can really get my voice and also rank in search. I'm like, well, <laughs> maybe because you keep complaining about how much they cost. Because you're looking, yeah, you're looking, yeah, it's, it's, uh, those types of writers are, I wouldn't even say expensive. Like that's the wrong word. Um. They're right. They're they're going to deliver a lot of value, and it's going to require more investment on your side. So right. yeah, uh, uh, I appreciate you like providing like actual real numbers and giving people like a benchmark. Um, uh, yeah, I actually have a like a price sheet that I have some standard pricing on just for average projects like that because I've found it so much easier to just share that with people yeah. toward the beginning of a conversation. Just say, here are my, you know, standard rates. It does say right on it, you know, depending on your specific project, this might be, you know, a little different, Right. but um, it helps to set the right expectations before you spend a bunch of time on the phone with somebody. Right. Um, it also makes it a lot easier rather than trying to come up with custom proposals for every single client. Yep. Um, I used to spend a ton of time doing that, like even in Canva, making them like look all beautiful. Now I just do it in like a Google doc. I've got a link yeah. to my standard pricing. Again, like one of those um, things that like... Does it need to be right? Yeah, like I'm probably overthinking this, right? Um, yeah. But thank you for sharing. So, like the the level of detail that you got into and how open you were about like pricing and what you were charging, what you were making. Like, thank you so much for sharing. That I know there's gonna be a lot of people in SGC that are gonna find this really valuable. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, if people wanna connect on LinkedIn or drop me a line or you know ask questions, I'm I'm all for it. Mm-hmm.